Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of the On the Tape podcast. I am Dan Nathan, as always, joined by Guy Adami and, of course, EY from SoFi. That would be Liz Young. Hi, guys. What up? We had a big week last week. The three of us were down at iConnections Global Alts Conference in Miami. We are actually, as the B block of this fine podcast, are going to post an interview that Liz moderated with Mike Wilson and David Zervos. Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley. He is the head strategist. There was some news around him, and we're going to talk about that in a second a little bit. And David Zervos is the head strategist over there at Jeffries. We're going to cover that really hot jobs report on Friday. We're going to cover a bit of the tech earnings that saw just some of these names absolutely blow out Friday during the trading day and probably a few other things here on this fine pod. First, a little housekeeping. Um, I was down in Washington, D.C. Guy, I was at your alma mater. That would be the Georgetown Hoyas and one Liz Young's alma mater. I think you got your MBA at Marquette. The Golden Eagles of Marquette really took it to the Hoyas on Saturday afternoon in D.C. Liz, thoughts there? Because this team is rolling as we head into Biggie's play here. It used to be that Marquette was like the darling of the Big East, and we were so good for so long, and then there was a period of time there where nothing really happened for a while. So it's nice to be back, and not just my MBA. My mom also went to Marquette. I was baptized on Marquette's campus, so MU runs deep over here, and I'm rooting for them all the way. Listen, big fan of Marquette. My roommate got married at Marquette. He's from, as I've mentioned a number of times, Mequon. Wisconsin, which is a suburb. Uh, And of course, when I was a lad in the 70s, Marquette with the Al McGuire reign was the team to beat for a long time. So there used to be a saying amongst the bookies around tournament time, put your bet on Marquette. 
Oh, like see, that. it rhymes for a reason. Yeah. yeah sure. You know, it's interesting. I grew up obviously in Syracuse, New York. So I was a big East basketball fan through and through. Georgetown was the nemesis of Syracuse back in the 80s. And it's interesting to see, you know, Syracuse joined, I think, about 10 years ago, the ACC. The Big East basketball, though, if you think about it, Georgetown, in my opinion, on the rise. But Marquette, Creighton, UConn, number one in the country, Villanova, they won a few championships over the last 10 years or so. So I, I think the Big East is on its way back. All right, let's talk about someone else who's on his way back. And this is is a dear friend of Guy Christopher Adami's. That would be Jay Powell. You know, he had a bang-up presser on Wednesday afternoon. Liz was on the market call with us right before that. She was on the set of Closing Bell right after that. The market was a bit volatile on Wednesday afternoon. It took the message loud and clear that a March rate cut was likely off the table, pushing it out to May. That's what Fed Futures, the CME Fed Funds tracker, was immediately pricing that. I think right now it's about an 80% chance of a cut. But last night on CBS's 60 Minutes, Fed Chair Powell made it clear that March is clearly off the table. We see yields up a little bit. We see spoos down just a little bit, 30 basis points, but we see the 10-year at 4.12. Liz, what changed in Fed Chair Powell's commentary from Wednesday afternoon and what we heard in the press by some other Fed speakers and last night? Now, granted, that interview was recorded on Thursday on his 71st birthday, guys. So you and him, you're pretty similar in age there. But Liz, what changed, at least as we walk Walk in Monday morning as we're recording this right before the opening to see yields up where they are and maybe S&P down a little bit. Really, I think the only difference was that in the presser on Wednesday, he just mentioned it one time and he was very clear that we may not be confident enough by March. The conversation that was aired last night was just digging deeper into the details of why and pushing again, almost doubling down on it and saying, yes, I meant what I said on Wednesday about we're not going to be confident by March. So I think what's happened now is that the market finally is believing him. I think for a long time, frankly, and even through the end of last year, the market wasn't listening. We weren't listening to what the Fed had been saying throughout most of this hiking cycle. And we got excited. The market got excited about cuts coming sooner. And I know that we've warned about that a lot. Be careful what you wish for. You don't actually want them to come sooner. And I had said for a while, I think they're going to get pushed back, not just because I don't want them to come sooner, but I think they're going to get pushed back because there's not a good justification to do it yet. So here's the thing. March or May, does it really matter? Probably not. Not unless something happens in the meantime. Now it's looking like maybe even June is the first one. And what that does to the market, so what's changed now, which hasn't necessarily priced into the market yet, but what that does to the market is, as we know, that period between the last hike and the first cut, the market tends to hold up okay. If we keep pushing that first cut back, we may just trudge along in this middling ground for a while unless there's a reason to find more upside, which at this level of valuations, I don't find a good reason for. I actually did watch it, believe it or not, because I felt <laughs> I was compelled to do so. But I like Scott Pelley. He's obviously not from our world, but I thought he did a good job. But he pushed them on Silicon Valley Bank and effectively Jerome Powell said, yeah, we whiffed. We, the Federal Reserve, whiffed on that without question. We've tightened things up a bit. He doesn't think this latest New York community bank thing is systemic. He thinks, you know, there are banks that are probably going to sort of get rolled up and stuff, but he doesn't see any concern there, which I totally get. One of the things that I found really interesting, because people always think this is the case, Scott Pelley asked him about an election year and you're going to feel pressure on a political front. And he basically said, you know, integrity is something that you want to maintain and you can't really put a price tag on it. And I actually believe him. So for those that think these rate cuts are on the back of some political 
pressure. I don't think that's the case. I just think the timing is such that makes a lot of sense. But to Elizabeth's point, it's when they start cutting is when you should be concerned. And quite frankly, whether it is March, May, whatever the meetings line up, I don't necessarily think that makes a difference. But I'll say this as well. Danny has talked about this. Once they go, they're going to go in a meaningful way. Like they're not going to stop. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens to the inflationary inputs that really haven't abated all that much. So one of the things I, I would quickly just add to that, we're not going to start in March. I was never really on the, the side of thinking that we were going to start in March, but I think there will be at least one larger than 25 basis point cut this year. Maybe not in reaction to something bad, but I think that we see at least a 50. And remember, we tend to forget this. When we hiked, when we started that hiking cycle, there were four 75 basis point hikes in a row, and those were bookended on either side by 250s. So we went up fast and we went up hard. They can come down. They have the room to come down a little bit faster. Yeah, and I guess the issue here is that, you know, what I'm starting to rethink here a little bit a, a year after being fairly well convinced that the economy was due for a recession because the pace in which hikes were going to happen in 2023. And then when you threw in the Silicon Valley Bank sort of thing, to me, I got a lot wrong over the last year. And now what I think about is this, I see, and I agree with Guy, I think what Fed Chair Powell, he made one mistake in 2021, they were just a little late to the inflation game, okay? And we spent a lot of time debating what the word transitory meant. And so if they had maybe rejiggered things a little bit, but it might not have mattered because as we got into 2022, that whole curveball with Russia invading Ukraine and the disruption with crude oil and natural gas and further disruption with supply chains. That's not something that was on too many folks' bingo cards, especially in 2021 when we saw inflation starting to boom. But when I think about this, we have an S&P very near 5,000. We spent a lot of time in Q4 of last year debating all these strategists and their targets and stuff like that. 5,000 was lots of their targets, right? Here we are. And we're going to talk about some of these tech earnings. We've been spending a lot of time talking about how the top six stocks saw on average about 50% year over year EPS growth in Q4, while the bottom 494 in the S&P saw down 10%. Something unnatural is happening right now, okay? And we saw it in the stock market on Friday with Meta up 20%, with Amazon up 8%. Some of these other stocks getting back on their horses. Listen, guys, NVIDIA is up 40% in a month. It has a $1.65 trillion market cap. It has gained $650 billion in market cap in the last month without a shred of news, okay? I worry that something very unnatural is happening in the stock market. But let's go back to the economy for a second, okay? Fed Chair Powell seemed calm. When guys like Guy believe that, that, that the whole integrity bit about the election year and what he might not do for the perception of helping the existing administration and the like, and the other headline last week was that former President Trump said if he is reelected, he is not going to reappoint Fed Chair Powell, the guy that he did appoint back in 2017. I just want to make one point here. And I know you guys know this. Inflation has come down. They're not going to wait till their 2% target. Okay. Wages are steady. Okay. And let's hope that they don't go too far too fast because that would be the reinflation like discussion here. But we had that unemployment jobs data that was super hot. We have a GDP that's running hotter than expected. Maybe this economy is just fine. Maybe it is different as far as the economy is concerned. And maybe that's the stock, what the stock market is telling me. I know that was a bit of a rant, but guy, like something is happening. There's a huge disconnect between the stock market and the economy. If you're looking at the stock market as a monolith, but if you're going back and looking at it the way we like, 
like to parse it out and the things that I've been wrong about for the last year, okay, then it might be dangerous. A lot to unravel there. So first of all, in terms of the people with their bingo cards, fortunately, most people that play bingo are not in charge of the Federal Reserve. And I'm no genius, but in terms of Russia, Ukraine, which you mentioned, a lot of people couldn't foresee that. That's not entirely true because we talked about it months prior to the fact when the Russians had 100,000 troops basically massing up on the Ukraine border. They weren't there to sun themselves. So if you were following along, it should have been pretty clear that something was going to happen. So I don't give them a pass on that necessarily, but I think your point is well taken. In terms of the economy, yeah, I mean, as long as people continue to spend, which they clearly are, they do have jobs, which they clearly do vis-a-vis the unemployment rate, the economy is going to sort of chug along. My concern has been around consumer debt. I think the average credit card rate now is 21.47% with credit card debt north of a trillion dollars. Also, I think there's close to $9 trillion of government debt that needs to be sort of funded at some point over the next year or so. It's going to be interesting to see who buys that as well, especially with what's going on in China. So As much as there is to like about the stock market, without question, there's so many things to be concerned about on the macro level, I think. Still, by the way, none of these things have gotten better. Some of them have gotten worse. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I already started the sentence about Powell. If we go back to... He's used, Dan, you said he seemed calm. I think that's just his general affect. I think he's always calm. I've seen him act maybe a little irritated at times in the sense of the market isn't listening. You guys aren't listening. These questions in the press are, are redundant. I can, I've can i seen him get a little irritated about that, but I think he's always going to seem calm, even in the middle of a crisis. And as far as the political piece goes, the way that I think about it for him, is he more interested in protecting his own reputation or is he more interested in protecting the reputation and the integrity of the Federal Reserve? I'm going to air on the ladder, right? I think he's trying to protect the Federal Reserve and just the institution. And there has been a lot of discussion about whether or not the credibility is still there. And I think it probably is important to him to restore the credibility of the Federal Reserve much more than it is for him to expect to get renominated. And frankly, we don't even know that he would want that job again. He's been in the seat for a while and it's been a rough few years. (laughs) I don't even know that he would really want that role again. I agree on the integrity bit. I think it is about the institution. I think we've had plenty of guests over the last few months talking about about, that he does not want to be the guy who fell asleep at the wheel uh, while inflation re-inflated, right? And then it became ingrained in the economy. And so there were a couple times, a couple pressers, I think, over the last year where we felt like he didn't really have a great handle on what some of these sorts of things, or at least the way he was articulating it to the audience. Again, we could debate that until we're blue in the face. I just think that there's stuff going on in the economy that has not gone on, or at least the way that we have perceived it through the, the, the lens of the markets as long as I've been in the business, because so many economists, so many strategists were wrong about the economy over the last year. And guy, inflation will only get worse at a time where a lot of folks were thinking it was going to tamp down. People forget the stock market. The S&P was making new all-time highs the first week of January of 2022. So that leads me to this Mike Wilson headline. Okay. So Mike is the chief strategist at Morgan Stanley. Mike has come on our podcast, I think almost every quarter guy since we started, maybe three years ago, Mike and I go way back back since he was a tech specialist at Morgan Stanley in the late 90s. I consider him a great friend. I consider him one of the smartest market minds that I know. When when you think about humility in this business, I, I think many of us, we can't find too many people who have it. He's had it, Guy. I know you've known Mike for an awful long time. The headline on Friday afternoon, the CIO's committee is maintaining his strategist position. You and I have made the point, Guy, that on many of occasions, while he maintained his bearish stance all of 2023, and a lot of people were throwing their arms up and this and that, whatever, 
remember, he was one of the first strategists to get bearish as we were heading into 2022. Most of those strategists never changed their tune throughout the entire bear market in 2022, okay? So a lot of folks were like, that's it. Like, that was the headline. You know what I mean? Sell stocks and this and that, whatever. I guess I tweeted something, and I've not tweeted in six months or so, and I don't generally look at the, the messages or whatever people are responding to. I said something like, those in the cheap seats, and I didn't mean like those who don't get it or this. I meant the anonymous trolls on Twitter. That, like people were dunking on them all over the place, okay? And I just made this point on many pods over the last few months since Mike was on with us a couple months ago. Man, his customers voted him II number one just a couple months ago. The people that pay Morgan Stanley, that pays his salary, the only firm the guy has worked at in 30 years on the street, okay? So guys, speak to me a little bit about that for those people who want to dunk on a guy like that who is obviously very well respected from his peers, okay, and obviously his clients and what that means because people are always looking for capitulatory sort of things that say, that's it. I'll make a sports analogy. It's great to be voted into the All-Star game by the fans. That's an honor, obviously, because you play for the fans. But to a certain extent, that becomes a popularity contest. I think the rewards and the awards that professional athletes and people in our world hold the most dear is when your peers acknowledge your work. And that's, to your point, exactly what's going on with Mike Wilson for a number of different years. Yeah, so it's easy to sit at 30,000 feet and say, Mike Wilson's been bearish for three years. The market's gone up straight for three years. He's wrong. He got squeezed out. Morgan Stanley's kicking him out. None of those things are necessarily true. The reality is the guy does extraordinarily thoughtful work. He put himself out there. Elizabeth interviewed him. I'm sure she has some comments as well. I think he'd be the first to acknowledge that this has lasted a lot longer than he thought it would, but nothing necessarily has changed. What he is seeing is consistent with very late cycle stuff that we've seen historically. So we'll see how it plays out. But I have the utmost admiration for him. And the fact that people in our world acknowledge him over and over again, I think speaks volumes. As a fellow strategist, I would consider myself not necessarily a peer because he's in just an upper echelon of that realm. But as a strategist, number one, one of the things that I have always respected about Mike and continue to respect about Mike is his intellectual consistency and his intellectual honesty, even in the face of disagreement. And his ability to portray that still in a confident yet humble way and just say, my research, my work is still showing me that this is what the take is, this is what my take is, and I'm sticking to it because I can't prove the other side with intellectual honesty. And I've always really respected that about him. The reality of it is, no matter how much people want to attack and, and assume that they know exactly why this happened, how it happened, and whose decision it was, nobody does know that. We don't know that. Mike probably knows that, and that's about it, right? And, and maybe some people at Morgan Stanley. Who knows what the cause was? Perhaps it was something that it had been a long time coming. Perhaps it was something that he even wanted, right? So it's easy to make assumptions. It's easy to assume that it's something bad and, and a big juicy story because that makes better headlines. But also, he wasn't wrong in 2022. He was right in 2022. And lest we forget all of the bulls in 2022 who were wrong. And what if something like this would have happened to one of the bulls in January or February of 2023? It would be the same ritual. It would be the same commentary just flipped in the other sentiment direction. We talk about not making the same mistakes over and over again. And I, I don't know, um, I, Liz, I don't know. If, I don't think you were in the markets um, back in the in the post.com 
crash and, and the ensuing bear market that lasted 2000, 2001, 2002, three consecutive down years. I don't think we had that in the markets, guys, since 73, 74. I, I think that was the sort of thing. And I have a little PTSD from that period, but it, it's remarkable that as horrible as the financial crisis was and, and what it did to risk assets with banks going under and insurance, you know, like, I mean, it was just devastation. The S&P was only down one year. So the idea that the markets go down two consecutive years, I thought that was going to be the case in 2023, or at least the first half. And that was also became consensus. I think about a lot of market strategists and, and differentiating between being a market strategist and an economist and then a fund manager. So that's what I got wrong. And I think Mike probably suffered a little bit from what Guy and I have suffered in 2023 is that we weren't really given a great opportunity to get out of our bearish market call. Not a whole heck of a lot has changed as some of the underpinnings of the things that worry us about the economy. But now here's where I want to go to, and maybe we can just end on this, guys, and spend a few minutes on this, is I just alluded to it. What's happened in NVIDIA, what happened on Friday with Meta, Meta gained $200 billion in market cap like that. I mean, listen, it feels like we have entered a blow off phase, okay? It feels like those last couple months before the March 2000 high in the NASDAQ. It feels like those months after Bear Stearns went under in March of 08, and then the market felt like it was just all tidy and contained because JP Morgan and the Fed had done the job, right? And then we went up, I think, 15% in the S&P 500 before the S&P got cut in half, right, over the next year or so. I worry that what's going on right now, that maybe some of the things that going on in the economy, maybe I don't understand, maybe a lot of economists don't understand, a lot of folks who are like looking at it, interpreting it through the lens of the market don't understand, but I worry that maybe the economy can keep chugging along in this new kind of found order that we have, but something horribly wrong is gonna go in the stock market because the concentration guy is getting that much more acute and to me, that much more dangerous. Yeah, we thought that this was going to be the year that you broaden out the rally, and it looked for a period of time like that might be the case. And the reality is we've just fallen right back into that same, I don't want to say trap, but basically into that same sort of vertical in terms of 10 stocks dominating the entire thing. But you know, in terms of the economy, I'll just throw this out here real quick because I think it's worth mentioning. Elizabeth knows about this as well. S&P 500, all-time high. NASDAQ, basically, all, all these things are making all-time high. The individual stocks we can rattle off. The Russell would need to rally 26% from here in order for it to reach the prior all-time high that it made. So the small caps clearly are telling a story that maybe I don't completely understand. But when you're talking about the most economically sensitive names out there, theoretically, an economy that everybody tells me is doing so well, with interest rates going from at 1.5% in the 10-year down to 380 and now hovering around, what, 415 or so, one would think that the small caps would have gotten on their horse and they have not for whatever reason, understanding that they're predominantly uh, led by small and mid-sized banks, which leads me to New York Community Bank, which again, people think is, again, basically specific to them, which I probably would agree. But you think New York Community Bank's the only bank out there with problems, and they have $100 billion in assets. So they're not necessarily a small bank. I mean, it's a rather significant bank. I think there's more pain on that front. I'm concerned that the Russell does not participate, understanding the banks are a big component of it. But I think it's important to point that out. Something else, if you look at what happened in the Russell in late 2021, there was this big rally. It had a breakout. People got really excited about it and said, that's it. That's the signal. Bull market continues. 
bull market, new bull market, right? And and now we're just off to the races. And then after that, it fell apart. So just because it might have had a tiny little breakout, right? It, it did bust a little bit, like a few points above that resistance line. That doesn't mean that you declare victory. And Again, I am one of the biggest small cap bulls usually. I love talking about small caps, but I love talking about them because they are so indicative of what's going on in other parts of the market and in the economy itself. And remembering that small caps employ at least half, if not closer to 60% of all employees in America. So they matter so much, not just to the market, but to the labor market and what's happening with all of capital markets. What you need from small caps, and we've talked about this in the last couple of weeks, you need it from small caps and you need it from industrials. You need both of those to confirm, not lead necessarily, but you need them to confirm that we are in an expansionary phase of the market and of the economy. That has not happened for small caps. Industrials have seen a nice run. Small caps, however, have not yet confirmed that. And the last thing I'll say about this, to Guy's point, small and mid caps are typically dominated by banks. And in a period where we're still worried about regional banks, whether or not that becomes a bigger problem or not, usually on the other side of a contraction, on the other side of a recession, you see something like small cap value, mid cap value outperform because if it is a financial crisis, those are the ones that lead coming out. So this is probably not the time to be piling into it and assuming that they're going to do better, especially when we're still, we have a huge question mark about what's going to happen with regionals. You know, it's interesting because regional banks, the KRE, the ETF that tracks them is down 26% from year ago levels. And we know that in March, obviously we had the SVB meltdown and they went from, I think the KRE was like in the mid sixties and got as low as maybe the mid thirties or so. So here we are, we're back in the high forties, but, but again, been very volatile, well below those year ago level highs. BKX is still down 15%. So like to your point about the broadening out, you're pointing about small caps and the concentration around financials and how the Russell 2000 trades, it just doesn't trade well. And I'm looking at my screens because the market just opened here. What do I see that's raging again? I see NVIDIA is up today. We are 15 minutes into trading or 10 minutes in trading. I don't know, three and a half percent. It gapped up three and a half percent. This is a $1.65 trillion market cap company that is set to report in three weeks. Okay, I know I'm getting a little hopped up here. This is really dangerous because again, there's just a handful of stocks and we keep losing some of them. Look how bad Tesla trades. Tesla gapped down 2%. And the point here is that when the story's over and we've been talking about the Tesla story for the last year, the fundamentals have been telling you that the story's over. People didn't want to believe it for a good part of last year until they started to. And so I just say, if you pull forward all of this enthusiasm about a Microsoft, about an NVIDIA, about a Meta, about an Amazon, even Google did not trade well. If you start seeing kinks in the armor guy, you start losing these stocks one by one, it's gonna start to steamroll or snowball or whatever you wanna do. And that's how the S&P is quickly down 10% on its way to down 20%. And I do believe this year, we're gonna have a 20% drawdown. You mentioned Nvidia, it's worth mentioning. I mean, AMD, which reported while we were in Miami and the quarter was okay, I guess. I didn't think the guidance was particularly good. And I think the fact that the stock doubled effectively from last quarter suggested that it had a huge bar to jump over. I don't think it did it. But with that said, you know, here we are basically unchanged from when they reported. So there are a lot of things out there that I look at and I find myself scratching my head. But to your point, they're the having to have nuts right now. I'll give you an example today. Caterpillar making a new all-time high. The flip side of the coin, McDonald's seemingly potentially put in a bit of a double top here. That's lower on the day. So again, there's stuff for the bulls out there. There's stuff for the bears. I'm looking at the Russell down again. I'm also looking at a VIX. It's been north of 14 for a little bit now which I think is telling as well. Friday, the VIX had a pretty 
solid day given the fact that the market was up. So maybe the VIX is telling a story as well. There are a lot of things to look at here and we'll continue to do our best to try to break it all down. I just want to say this because guys mentioning the VIX here that's ticking up a little bit. There's a weird thing happening in the options market right now, especially among these much loved names. The, the skew, and I'm just going to leave this really simple. The price that you would pay for upside calls versus downside puts, the calls are becoming more expensive. Usually it's puts, right? People want protection for their things. And when you see that start to happen, your antennas better start getting up. And I had a friend of mine, very successful money manager, tech manager, hedge fund manager, also runs long only money. Okay. He told me on Friday that 70% of his hedge fund portfolio is in NVIDIA, Meta, and Amazon. Okay. So he is having a bang up year. And you know what I said to him? Please collar those stocks. What does that mean? Selling an upside call, taking in the premium, having some room to the upside where that stock can continue to go between now and that expiration and that call price. And if the stock goes through that call price on expiration, your stock would be called away, but you're going to use that premium to buy a downside put, okay? To put in a floor in which you would lose on that. And famously, Mark Cuban is a billionaire because his company it would have failed miserably. This is broadcast.com that Yahoo bought, I think in 1999. And he was given a boatload of Yahoo stock, became one of the biggest stocks in the entire stock market, okay? He took that stock and he collared it. And he said, you know what? I'm good. If this stock goes up to that call strike price, I'm taken out and that's my trade. But I want to defend that position below a certain point. And that's why he was able to buy the Mavericks. That's why he's on Shark Tank. That's why he's the guy who he is. I'm telling you right now, the market is giving you the Mark Cuban opportunity to protect some of these fabulous gains, especially in the options market list. Do you think about some of those kind of disconnects that are not things that most investors have their eyes on? But to me, I think the market's giving you a very good opportunity to do that right now. I could be wrong about this, but I think that's what made Mark Cuban a billionaire. I think that's when he ticked above a billion. And in that moment, it would be really easy to get irrationally exuberant and say, I'm invincible. Money will always be there. I'm a billionaire. It can't go down. But he didn't. And he still practiced risk management. I would say this, something much less prescriptive than what you said. If you're buying a stock that seems like an easy decision, it seems so easy that, oh, it must just go up, right? It seems obvious that it's going to go up. That's when you shouldn't buy it. So I would be careful. Look at the market now if you want to buy. And look, I'm not criticizing anybody for being bullish or wanting to buy right now or having a little bit of FOMO. I think none of us are immune to that, especially when you see rallies go on like this, but don't buy the stuff that seems easy to buy because that's usually the stuff that has already been bought by everybody else. Buy the stuff that seems a little bit more tricky to buy or something that feels risky because it hasn't participated or maybe even something that's had a drawdown at the same time that some of this other stuff is going up for seemingly no reason. Yeah, I'll just mention this and, and we've highlighted this on the pod over the last six months or so on many occasions, this GLP-1, these obesity drugs. So it's Eli Lilly and it's Novo Nordisk. Today, these are mega trends. People are excited about them as they are about AI. And, and we've seen people pile into them. I think they have a combined market cap of over a trillion two right now. Both of these stocks gap today to a new all-time high. Both of these stocks are up 3%. So you're seeing this sort of euphoric behavior go on. And listen, can it go on longer than we expect? Longer than we can rant on a podcast or on a television show on CNBC? I, I just think it's important to actually make people aware this has happened before. We've 
seen it happen before. Very few folks take advantage of it. Guy, take us out here, bud. Any parting thoughts? Because, you know, we're going to be on Market Call all week, Monday through Thursday. Liz, you'll be back with us on Wednesday. We're going to be doing the pod with Danny Thursday afternoon. That'll drop on, on Friday. We show up every day. We call it the way we see it. But this feels a bit unnatural to me, Guy, at the moment. I think Eli Lilly's pushing up towards $700. To your point, all these things are seemingly on autopilot and it works until it doesn't. But when they pull the chairs out, and again, there are a lot of things to like right now. The market is the one thing, but there are a lot of things below the surface I think you have to be concerned about and euphoria now. And I want to say complacency out there amongst people is is frightening in a word because you know, we didn't even mention the fact that on Friday after the close, obviously the United States targeted 85 different places in terms of missiles and stuff. We would have led with that historically, and we're not even talking about it today. So a lot out there to be worried about. Markets suggest otherwise, Dan. All right, Liz Young, we really appreciate you being here bright and early with us on a Monday morning. Stick around. Liz had a great conversation. It was a masterclass in moderating a panel, I will say. She had Mike <laughs> Wilson and David Zervos. That was just last Tuesday. So stick around for that conversation. And Liz will be back with us on the Market Call Wednesday afternoon. Guy and I will be back today at 1 o'clock on Market Call, 5 o'clock on CNBC's Fast Money. So tune in for all that. We'll see you all back on the Risk Reversal Media Network. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank NA, NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. David, I'm going to start with you because you've got this fancy hat on, give you a chance to explain what it is. 2023 was the year of the non-recession, right? The recession that wasn't. So as we get into 2024, has it been canceled or just rescheduled? I don't know that I I would say rescheduled or canceled. The business cycle is never canceled. We will eventually have a recession. Uh, I think 
For 2024, the important question to ask is, is what did we learn from 2023? And how can we be better at understanding the economy and financial markets in 2024 with that in mind? And I think what, we, what, what I took away from 2023 and what I tried to push with our clients was that when you look at monetary policy and you look at how restrictive it is, you can't singularly look through the lens of interest rates any longer. You have to bring the balance sheet and the interest rate structure together. And we spent a lot of time uh, developing at the beginning of last year these ideas that there was an enormous amount of liquidity in the system. These balance sheets are massive. Uh, Fed's balance sheet was $9 trillion at its peak, 40% of GDP. You go back to pre-global financial crisis, it was 5% of GDP. So that liquidity was still in our system. And the assets that were on the balance sheet were sort of shock absorbers for losses in financial markets because they had bought so many long-duration assets, which, again, was also a stimulative, uh, a, ver a very stimulative part of the equation. So for me, the, the takeaway from 2023 that you want to bring into 2024 is that while rate policy went up 525 bips, balance sheet policy stayed very accommodative and is still quite accommodative. And so we didn't really beat the economy up that hard. Uh, and I guess that's a lot of the reason why we just had six quarters in a row of north of 2% GDP growth accelerating in the last two quarters. And a lot of the disinflation that came with that was really due much more to supply side forces than demand side forces. So to me, the takeaway is we're not in that restrictive of a place. The Fed's largely done its job at fighting back the inflation spike that came through the supply side. We can get back to even accommodative policy at some point this year. And more importantly than when do they go and how much do they go and everything else is that they can act again, that they don't have to fight that inflation. And the, the kind of Federal Reserve backstop put structure is kind of in place, something that has been missing for a couple years now. And I think having that backstop means that you can dial your risk up. Whatever you were doing last year, you're supposed to be dialing that risk up even further this year because the Fed can, if needed, cut two or 300 basis points fast, bring in balance sheet funding facilities, do a lot of the things that it couldn't do in 2022 or 2023 because they had to really make sure that that inflation shock was being managed properly. Uh, and so we sit back in a, I think, in a pretty good place as we head into 2024. And your, your hat, for those of you who can't see it, it's a J with a crown. Well, I always uh, have a hat every year for our clients. Uh, last year was our junk bond hat. The year before was a broken hearted hat with QT on it. Uh, we've done a lot. We had hearts with QE on it because I do love QE. It is one of my favorite things uh, when we can do it. It's a great, great, great elixir, great drug. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think Jay nailed it. And I, you know, I spent a lot of the last two years defending his actions and saying this guy was not gonna go down in the history books as Arthur Burns. He was gonna fight the good fight and make sure that inflation expectations stayed anchored. And he did that. And whether it was through a little bit of luck or a little bit of smart, he got out of it without much scathing. And I think there were a lot of pundits that have sat on stages like this that really went hard on Jay 
over the last two years. And it's, uh, you know, I, I've been writing a lot of pieces and making a lot of statements that I think we should be uh, applauding his actions. He gave us tough love. We needed it to get the inflation down. And here we sit, and the inflation's down. And remember, the last two years weren't that great. The S&P's unchanged for two years. Yeah. With 4,800 to 4,800. Yeah. A little dip and a little rise. So it has not been a great run in the last two years for equities, um, especially when you think of how fast the economy's grown in nominal terms, but, and even how fast it's grown in real terms in the last six quarters. So, you know, he had to deliver that pain. He did what a central bank is supposed to do. He anchored inflation expectations, and the dividend from that is that he can act to backstop us again, like he had been doing before with COVID, or as Bernanke was doing post the global financial crisis. So, Mike, do you agree? He did, did he nail it? So far, um, I think uh, you know. I think the Fed gets a bad rap as well because they were really fighting the government uh, in this inflation fight. It's amazing, you know, in 2023, even. I mean, the federal government spent you know, six, seven percent more than they did the year before. I mean, the federal deficit increased by six to seven percent, which is, you know, incredible. Uh, and that, you know, sort of like one hand, you know, fighting the other hand. So I think he, he was dealing with that dynamic. The Fed was dealing with that dynamic. And I think as, as David rightly points out, I mean, there were a lot of policy things going on that people weren't really recognizing. Everybody was focused on interest rates. There was this liquidity uh, elixir that was going on. And there was this big fiscal elixir that was going on, which explains a lot of what happened in the stock market last year. The growth that we got was very low quality growth, right? It was government spending, uh, which is very inefficient, as everybody knows. And it led to a situation where inflation actually was still eating into costs. We have, you know, the government's overpaying for stuff. And that, that inflation is a cost for a lot of businesses that they couldn't pass on. So if you look at the performance of the stock market, everybody knows it's, you know, whatever last year was is eight stocks until the fourth quarter when when Jay pivoted and, and the Treasury kind of squeezed us on issuance. Um, and, and so that, you know, the, until that moment, though, it was a very narrow market, small, smaller businesses, uh, cyclical businesses that have, you know, leverage. You know, they're not flat over two years. They're down 20% or 40%. And we were chatting, and we were chatting, you know, backstage. I mean, a lot of these VC investments are just not being funded at all. They're just going to go to zero. And, and that's good. I mean, and that's the tough love that, he, that Jay delivered. And that was necessary because we just had too much excess uh, coming off the COVID boost that we just overdid it on. So I think he did, I think he did a good job. But now we still have, there's still aftershocks that are going on that have nothing to do with the Fed but have to do with the pandemic itself and then the response to that pandemic, which is both a fiscal and a monetary response. Well, and it seems like there's this, this want to focus on the market movement over everything else, right? You, the pushback on some of that might be, nothing's really changed with the economic fundamentals. The only thing that's changed is that the stock market has gone up since October. Suddenly we declare a soft landing, but we know the quote, right? The market has predicted nine of the last five recessions. I think we can update it now to 14 of the last eight recessions. So if the market is so bad at predicting recession, what makes us think it's so good at predicting a soft landing? I'll start, I'll start with you. Well, I mean, I think the market is no different. I mean, it's basically all of us collectively making a bet. And I mean, obviously, forecasting is a tough game. Just ask Yogi Berra. And I mean, it's, it's hard and it's, it's uncertain. And the data sometimes is not accurate in what you're looking at in the moment. And so, like, things just, you know, they bounce around. So I, I agree with you. I don't, 
I don't think anybody should be you know, betting the ranch on the outcome in the economy on what the stock market is saying. I mean, I make a living at trying to determine what the market's telling me about you know, what's working and how that affects, but it's not the only thing that we look at. And um, I don't think it'll be any different this time. I, I also would say that because of the pandemic, one of the things that's happened is that we're getting way more volatility in all of the economic statistics, right? So since the crisis, the post-financial uh, GFC crisis, everything's been compressed, right? There was an extreme policy. So you had no inflation, you had no interest rate volatility, you had no uh, every, uh, labor costs. Everything was very predictable for companies and that game is over. So you're just gonna have a lot more volatility in the economic variables, which creates opportunity because some companies can take advantage of that and it creates risk for companies who get eaten up by that. You know, one of our best themes in the last two years has been just buying companies that are the better operators. Right, the, the better, in every industry there is, a, there is a superior operator, right? Walmart versus Target is a perfect example. They're just better operators. And so when these things happen in the economy, they can deal with it. And I think, we're, I think that's here to stay. Like you should be paying a premium for good operators. And that's a theme that probably will persist whether we have a recession or don't have a recession. I just, I just add to that, I think that's absolutely right. But I would also, you know, and I don't venture down as far to the micro as you do often, Mike. But I think one thing that's really been different in the post-COVID era and with this interest rate spike is that for the first time in a long time, capital structures matter mm -hmm. for companies. You can have a great company, but if you've got a bad CFO that didn't set up the right capital structure, you're screwed in this higher rate environment. And the Fed told you, you've got to take some pain, and you did. So I think a lot of the CEOs that I speak to at Jefferies who want to understand the macro, and by the way, it's unbelievable how many banking clients I speak to just as a macro guy compared to where we were before because of what's happened here. Um, it happened after the GFC and then it went away and then it's back big after COVID. I, I just think capital structure matters a lot more. Interest rate volatility is probably here to stay. Real rate structures as high as these that have persisted and and are, are likely, I think, to persist for a while um, in a world of flush liquidity with big balance sheets, I think just it's a different operating structure for a lot of businesses. And I, I, I don't think that's good or bad. I just think it creates a lot of potential winners and losers and makes the probably the long-short equity guys happy that there's other things to distinguish, not just being a good operator of your business. It's not enough to run a great business and have a great product. You've gotta have a great capital structure now. Mm -hmm. And you really didn't have to think about capital structure with the Fed doing what it was doing with rates so low and volatility so low and inflation. Now you gotta think about it. And that's a big difference. Okay, so having said that, we're, we're supposed to talk about risk appetite, right? So when we think about risk, first of all, you can, you can tell us how you would define risk for your clients. Most clients define it as losing money. That's just what <laughs> risk means. I think about it in more of a, a risk budget perspective, right? You've, every portfolio has a risk budget they can spend. As soon as you, you've spent your budget, you're tapped out. So if that were the way to frame it in 2024, where do you spend your risk budget? Well, look, I mean, I think uh, last year was a year and, you know, we can debate whether how tight they were on monetary, but tighter monetary policy. Okay. So you had a year of tighter monetary policy and very loose fiscal. Um, and this year you have a situation where you probably get tighter fiscal and looser monetary. All right. And you know, sort of my view on that is that means rates are probably lower, uh, real rates probably come down, uh, the Fed will cut as, you know, if real rates go up, they'll cut faster as inflation comes down. 
And that means, and that's unequivocally good for, for duration. It's good for bonds generally, okay? Uh, and, and we saw that trade from, from, from October, right? The best risk-reward trade from October to with January, everybody's talking about the S&P 500 or their favorite stock. I mean, long-duration bonds are up 15%, you know, risk-free, that's pretty damn good. So that, that, that value has kind of been priced a bit. And then in the stock world, I think, once again, it's gonna be idiosyncratic. I don't think it's gonna be as narrow as last year, because last year it was really those 10 companies cutting costs. There was one NVIDIA that had real organic growth that you know, took off, but the rest of them was just a cost-cutting story. And I think but it's gonna be companies like that. So next year it should broaden out to high-quality growth, growth, growth cyclicals or growth companies, uh, high-quality growth that can actually generate pricing power in this environment, whether it's a capital structure issue or an operational issue, and, that should, and that's where you should spend your money. You should spend it on individual sort of stocks, not on the big index. The big index is full. It's, it's priced, okay, for, for, the, for all intents and purposes. The value is not there. The value is underneath the market now. If you're in the soft landing camp, you want to be buying individual stocks that have the ability to grow in price. Um, and then on the rates, I'll let David talk about kind of where within that structure he thinks the best value is, but it should be a pretty good year for bonds. Now, credit's already pretty tight, so it's really more of a rate call and just that you're earning again. You're earning a good real yield, 2%, nothing wrong with that. You know, last year our call was, was high yield, it was junk, um, which, which was our tiptoe back into risk after getting out of our, all of our risk trades in 2022, thankfully, certainly our risk parity trades. Um, I, I go back to what I said in the beginning. I, I think you're, you're meant to dial up the risk from where you were last year and certainly from where we were in 2022. And, and the reason is not because the Fed will cut every month, start, every meeting starting in March or every other month starting in May. We don't know what they will do. Will is the worst word when we're describing the Fed reaction function. The Fed can, the Fed can cut 100, 200, 300 basis points if things get messy. The Fed can create a balance sheet funding facility like the BTFP to deal with regional banks. If there's a problem in commercial real estate, they'll create a funding facility. And if they get to those zero lower bound, they'll restart QE. The Fed put structure, which has never been more powerful with funding facilities, QE, and rates, and never gone through more technological advancement than it's gone through in the last 15 years with all of this unconventional policy, has never been more of a backstop than now. And there were two years that we just had to live through where Jay Powell told you, he said, look guys, I'm not here for you. That's what he said in 2022. I'm not here, I can't backstop you, I gotta fight this inflation. I gotta take rates up fast, and it's gonna hurt, and get out of the way, and I'm gonna do that because in the long run, inflation expectations are anchored, this thing's coming back down, and I will once again be able to backstop you. And here we sit. Two years later, we took the pain, the fire trucks went and put the inflation fire out, and Jay and the Fed infrastructure, which has backstopped this market through many, many varieties of supply and demand shock, is back in play. So you were missing a line item for the last two years. It's called Fed put. It was in the Excel spreadsheet that you had with all your other line items, whatever, you had NVIDIA, and you had Microsoft, and you had whatever other stock and individual fund structure and long bonds or whatever it was. And then there was this thing called Fed put. And it was great. It was fantastic. 
Would it function, and he took it away. Would it function the same, though? So they've got, they've got two options this year. They can cut because they want to cut. They need to normalize, right? And we talk about it as normalization of policy. Or they cut because they put the put back in place, and, which would be in reaction to something going wrong, data weakening, something's gotten worse. Yeah. Right now, the market is priced, the s and priced at 20 times forward earnings, right? You can only assume that in the situation where things get worse and they have to put that put in place, the 20 times earnings is way too high. Well, that's why, look, we've, you know, I made a career at Jefferies out of the last 15 years. This is my 15th year of, of advocating risk parity style trades, what, what has worked at Bridgewater and AQR and others. They're all weather type structures where you have a leveraged fixed income hedge for your equity long. Um, and you couldn't do that in the last two years. I think you can do that again. And if things get messy, those fixed income hedges are gonna pay sure. handsomely. So that's really where, where I'm coming from in terms of the risk appetite story. Dial it up, have your hedges, and also know that the Fed does have your back in a way that they haven't for the last two years, but the way that they did prior. Doesn't mean we can't get 10% corrections, 15% corrections, or 20% corrections. We had a 25% drawdown in 2022. We went from 4,800 to 3,600 like that. And did the Fed put come in? No. Jay basically stood there and said, you guys are on your own. In fact, in August of 2022 at the Jackson Hole Conference, I think he used the word pain over 20 times in that speech. And the market was right there at 3,600. He did not care that we went down 25. Any other time, Post the GFC, we had a 25% correction. They were either doing QE2 or QE3 or you know, cutting rates back or pushing expectations back. So I'm just saying, you're back to that structure where they won the battle and they can bring the put back. And that means you can dial up your risk. So to find the right risk appetite this year, take whatever you did last year and turn it up a little and put a fixed income hedge on it in the back months over futures. So that's, that's the trade. So for those of you in the room who were lucky enough to buy the MAG-7 last year, congratulations. If that's what people did last year, Mike, do they turn the risk up again on the MAG-7 or do we start sprinkling into other things? Yeah, well, it's narrowing already, right? We're it's yeah. down to, I think it's the MAG-4 now, uh, you know, and, <laughs> and, it, and it's related to earnings. Right? I mean, mm -hmm. the earnings for some of these are falling by the wayside, and so it's just, it's getting harder even for some of those businesses because they can only do so much on the cost side, and then it got priced. So I think the market is going to broaden out to, but it's not going to broaden out to, like, junky small caps or, you know, cyclically geared businesses that have bad balance sheets that now have to get refinanced at these higher normalized rates. I just want to go back to what we were in the, in the risk budget thing. I think the most important development, and David's already said this one way, I'll say it a different way because I'm not as smart on the fixed income side. The way I think about it is that rates, the most positive thing that happened in the last two years is that rates have fully normalized on both a real and a nominal basis without the system blowing up. I mean, if you had told me they were going to raise 550 basis points in two years, I'd have been like, good luck. I mean, this thing's going to be like a powder keg. And there were certain areas in the market that were powder cakes, but they deserved to be powder cakes, okay? Stocks trading with, you know, negative free cash flow for 10 years. I mean, come on, that stuff's a joke. So that stuff did blow up, and we took that pain, but we can move forward with higher uh, normalized rates, and actually, I would say, really positive real rates, which is a weapon in portfolio construction. That's, that's what it's good for. Like, if you, if you have 
higher rates, not only can JPOL use that to, to help you, but you can use it in your portfolio now. When rates are negative two, two, 300 basis points on a real basis, like what good is that? That doesn't do anything for you if there's a calamity. It's not gonna, it's not gonna offset your equity losses. 100%. So I think that's right. You dial up the risk, but you dial it up on both sides, right? Fixed income now is back to its old sort of you know, value, which is it's not only yield, but it's actually a diversifier against you know, calamities. And that's a, that's a different place. And it, and it might be, you know, you might want to have it in real yield or you might want to have it in nominal yield. We could have that debate. But I think that's a really important point. And I, and I guess I, I want to go back to the balance sheet. And I, I, look, I've, I've studied the Fed balance sheet all my life. I had the privilege of working at the Fed in 09 when we were first debating the size of QE1 when I went back as an advisor after I left Brevin Howard. We do not spend enough time thinking about how important these big balance sheets have become in their impact to the economy and their impact to financial markets. And one of the reasons I think, and, and, and I would have been with you, Mike, one of the reasons I think we all kind of thought a 525 basis point move in rates would have just punched the economy in the face is because we lived through things like 1994, where 300 basis points punched the economy in the face, and Mexico went bankrupt, and Orange County went bankrupt, and the world was, you know, 20, Goldman Sachs lost 25% of its capital in a year. It was a mess. But we have this $9 trillion of high-powered money sitting in our veins, and we didn't do anything with it. We left that massively accommodated balance sheet in the system as we raised rates, and it nullified the power. And then the losses that got absorbed in those balance sheets created stimulus as rates went up, because you had winners that had locked in low rates, and the losers were in the central bank, they weren't in the private sector. All of that, to me, suggests that central banks are gonna look at this, and they're gonna come away thinking, you know what? This world of higher real rates, of a higher, rate structure and a bigger balance sheet actually works better. And I think that's why Lori Logan's out there talking right now about stopping QT. We're going to stop QT probably somewhere around seven to seven and a half trillion dollars on the Fed's balance sheet, which is where the size of it is now. It's a little probably 7.6 trillion. That's a colossal balance sheet. And we're just going to leave that there forever. That means seven trillion dollars of our debt will be permanently funded by monetary printing. So out of the $34 trillion of debt that everybody's so nervous about that we're never gonna pay back, $7 trillion's always gonna be with the Fed forever, done. Kids don't have to pay that back. That's the end result of where we stop with QT. And we are using that stimulus, and that is a huge stimulus, that accommodative side of the reserve, the balance sheet, which I think is what lifts earnings and lifts nominal GDP and lifts profits and lifts valuations, we're gonna leave that there and we're gonna offset that by running higher interest rate structures. So we're not going back to the 2019 yield curve, which was flat at 2%, and a balance sheet that was 18% of GDP. We're gonna to go to a Fed balance sheet that probably stays at 25 to 30% of GDP and an interest rate structure at three. And I think a lot about what that means for value versus growth, what that means for companies' balance sheets, what that means for volatility. It brings volatility in rates up. And it probably means that multiples, as you were asking about, like cash flows out in the future aren't worth as much, but you have a huge cushion 
in that balance sheet a nominal cushion to things like earnings and profits. So does the cushion then, Mike, does it lessen the blow of the pain that we've talked about? Jay Powell said we need to inflict some pain, everybody be ready for this pain. The pain hasn't really happened yet, right? How much pain, given the cushion, how much pain can the market take, can investors take before it starts to wobble? So things like unemployment's back down at 3.7%. Can we get it to 4.5% without people freaking out? Can we get GDP down to 1.4%, which is where the Fed predicts that it's going to be this year, without people freaking out? What's the, what's the threshold? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think David lays out a very interesting framework uh, that's very worthwhile and worth thinking about. And it, with that context, uh, the Fed itself is projecting kind of this unexciting outlook. Now, we all know their ability to predict is as good as mine. So, um, <laughs> but they're, they're basically... All with, of us. With this, the yeah. collective, Don't just, yeah. the collective with mind. With this knowledge, <laughs> yeah. with this, but with this knowledge that they have, they're, they're still saying it's going to be a bit of a slog. Okay? Uh -huh. So I think the pain... Um, when people say when you say the word pain, it's like oh my god, things are blowing up left right. No, but like it's a it's like almost like an erosion. Okay, so there's an erosion of companies that probably shouldn't exist. Right? I mean, like in the in the QE era, like true QE and the negative real interest rates. I mean, there's a lot of businesses out there that don't that shouldn't exist, and so they're just going to slowly become less important. It's going to it's going to become a more concentrated sort of probably public equity market, but that will create new opportunities too. You know, with new technologies and things, there'll be there'll be new things that pop up. But like, there's a there's a big part of the world, uh, the economic world, that is on its way to zero. Okay, and mm. I don't know how long that takes. The question is, is it is it fast enough where that creates a labor cycle, right? Because don't forget, half the people in this country are, are employed by those small medium businesses or unprofitable businesses in some cases. So. Does it get bad enough in the near term that there's a, more of a mass firing and then unemployment goes to 6 7%? I have no idea, but I would say the risk is non-zero. I mean, that's for sure. It's probably a 20 25% chance. We just don't know. Um, it's not 70% chance like people thought a year ago. And that's just where we are. You know, and I think that's how we had to think about it. So I'm going to close this out with the question that we talked about backstage that you said when you meet with clients, this is the second or third question that you get. So I'm sure there's people in this room who have the same one. How does the election affect the risk appetite that people should have, or maybe it shouldn't affect it at all? How are you framing that? And I'll start with you, Mike. So, yeah, I mean, it's been surprising to me um, that this question's already coming up. Typically, and I've been doing this long enough, every four years that you know, we get the question, it usually starts in, you know, after the primaries are completely over, maybe like May, June, because that's when you can kind of determine at the sector level, like what's gonna, what's gonna be important. Here are, some th here are some truths that we kinda know. Usually in the election, presidential election year, the market doesn't really do much the first half. Now this year may be different because of the pivot that we just saw, but that's, and then you get all the action when it becomes clear who's going to actually win. It's almost like a sigh of relief, and you get a, usually a pretty big fourth quarter. The other thing that's uh, always the case is everybody worries about healthcare, just guaranteed. At some point in the year, it's gonna be, oh, healthcare's screwed. You know, that, that, that'll, that'll happen at some point, there'll be a 20% drawdown, it's a, it's a buying opportunity, okay? And then there's gonna be the idiosyncratic things. I think the three big topics that are gonna come up are tariffs, obviously, because if, if Trump wins, the presumption is he's gonna tariff everybody to, to hell. Um, number two is gonna be immigration. Um, how are these two parties gonna deal with it differently or collectively? And that issue may actually come forward. Like, we may have to deal with that before the election because it's become such a hot issue for the Democrats, I think. It's a real, it's a real negative for them. They're gonna have to do something. Um, and then probably the third one is gonna be around taxes. Um, obviously, if Trump were to win, I think there's a presumption that we at least extend the taxes you know, further out that we've already had for corporate, or there could be new taxes. 
And those are the three big ones, I think, that could move markets in a meaningful way. But it's just early. You know, it's very early to be having these debates in any kind of serious manner. I'd say the biggest one that I look at is regulation. I think deregulation was a big driver of what happened in 17, 18, and 19 under Trump. I think the market will come back, look at that. Uh, and generally speaking, you know, how you dial your risk appetite up, the higher probability we go for Trump, if, if it's a Trump-Biden race, which it looks like it is, I think the more people are going to focus on that and focus on what that means specifically in markets, and that's a positive. Um, it's a net positive on a Trump win. It'll be up more, and people are going to buy on that. Um, there, there isn't going to be this, have everybody remembers what happened in 16, the market went down 10% for about 12 hours, mm -hmm. and then you had to chase it for the next two years. Um, you know, I think Jamie Dimon probably said it as, as well as anyone could say it. A lot of these policies are what we in financial markets would really like to see. Maybe you wouldn't deliver them the same way as Trump delivers them, but the policies are the ones that people are gonna buy risk on. And so you dial up your risk appetite, the more you think the likelihood shifts to Trump. Okay, we finished on a high note, politics. <laughs> Thanks everybody, that's our time. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.